in first century Jerusalem, you would see a group of disciples or students walking through the streets and among them leading the way their teacher, their rabbi. So valuable was the opportunity to follow the rabbi that you longed to be covered in the dust of his feet. Jesus of Nazareth was walking those ancient streets. Today, Jesus is still calling disciples. Come, follow me, that all who draw near may be covered in dust. Good morning. Good morning indeed. Well, there's this religious cult that started actually right here in the United States of America in about the year 2000. This is like a brand new uh, religious entity out there, and it has grown rapidly actually because people get so evangelistic and uh, really excited about this cult, and so they're sharing it with everyone. And uh, that religious cult is one known as CrossFit. If you are part of CrossFit, I woke up this morning and chose violence, okay? This, this CrossFit, and am, I, am I wrong? Am I wrong in this? That you don't know a single person who does CrossFit that isn't also extremely passionate about CrossFit, yes? Like, they love it. And here's the other thing. It is super effective. Like, I don't think I know a single person who does CrossFit that is not, like, super fit or really making progress, that kind of thing. And so I was calling my buddy, and I was thinking about this, and like, hey, tell me a little bit about CrossFit. He's like, can I just sell you on it? I'm like, what, do I need it, bro? Like, do I? And so he's going in, and he's telling me about uh, why it's so effective. And so he said it's a few things. Like, one, there's a community around it. There is this community, and they're all committed to the same thing. Uh, there's a coaching and kind of a program. So when you show up, it's not like I'm here at the gym by myself to like hopefully do something. Uh, you show up and somebody's actually walking you through a program that guarantees it's going to be harder than last time. And I was like, you're really selling this to me like with like how hard it's going to be. I don't know if I want to do this. And then lastly, he said that the, the community holds you accountable. That like even on Facebook, he says people are on there and they're telling each other like, why did you not show up this week? Like I haven't seen you in a while. You need to get to the gym. Like how is your eating habits? Like are you giving up all the like junk foods and are you, you embracing your goals and chasing after it? And so in CrossFit, we find this kind of community committed to self-denial. All for the sake of growing and experiencing progress. And listen, in the same way, we as followers of Jesus are a community like that. We are a community committed to self-denial. That we are a community committed to progressing in looking more like Jesus. By the way, that was the worst illustration that just happened in the face of the planet. Just did like a CrossFit Jesus thing there. Um, but the truth is, it really is a community where we say, hey, we're going we're gonna to rid ourselves of our brokenness. We are going to say no to our own will, and we are going to chase after God's will, and we're going to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And we do all that through self-denial, self-denial. Last week, Scott talked about fasting, giving up food for a short time for the sake of having clarity around your calling, your purpose, knowing God and seeking his face. And this week, I want, to, I want you to see that as disciples of Jesus, we need to be committed to self-denial on a daily basis, even when we're not fasting. We're going to be saying no to sin. And so let me take you through a brief kind of theology of self-denial. 
This is so close to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, this idea. And it all begins with Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of sacrifice and surrender. Bruce Shelley writes this. Christianity is the only major religion to have its central event, the the humiliation of its God. That at the very center of Christianity is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who denied his own kind of internal, natural human resistance to death and carried his cross because he knew that ultimately our salvation required his humiliation. So he gave up himself. And then you continue on studying discipleship in the New Testament. And I want to just point out five things that a disciple is. Number one, we are to embrace the the same thing Jesus did by being a cross carrier. By being a cross carrier. This is where Jesus and Matthew said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow after me. Secondly, we are to be a temptation butcher. A temptation butcher, Matthew 5, Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. Cut it off. Metaphorically speaking, of course. But we need to cut off temptation, things that hold us back from likeness to Jesus. Uh, Thirdly, we are to be a focused soldier. Second Timothy, we read this, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, but his aim is to please the one who enlisted him, to please God. Next, we are to be a flesh boxer, like a flesh boxer where we are fighting against. uh, 1 Corinthians 9 says, says it this way, so I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. Some translations write, I beat my body and make it my slave, that we would resist the flesh and sin and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And lastly, uh, I like this one, um, that we are to be a sin slayer, a sin slayer. Colossians 3 says, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and all of this idolatry. Um, If you are trying to raise boys in the gospel, by the way, (laughs) This is a phenomenal like picture right here. You should just snap a photo. It's just so very like Legend of Zelda when you look at it. That's because discipleship to Jesus is one where we're actually waging war on what holds us back to Jesus. And so um, what we're going to do today is we're going to open a primary passage, a very prominent story in the Gospels in Mark chapter 10. And uh, here's what we're not going to have. I actually am not going to have the verses on the screen today. And that's actually intentional because this is a big chunk. This is a big passage. And I want you to grab a Bible or to open your Bible app and to scroll along or to read along um, with me. And so if you are new to the Bible, and I know many of you are, uh, this is exciting for me to see, uh, you know, over a hundred of us in this room right now, like actually opening up the text of scripture. This, as you're finding it, um, if you have one of the newer Bibles from the tables, it'll be on page 794. And if you have um, the older looking Bible, it'll be 846. So go ahead and flip there. In this past, this story happens three different times in the Gospels. Three different times. It's like the gospel writers are saying this one was really important for us to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And what we're going to see in it is uh, essentially it is implied that we should give up two things. 
If we're going to be a people of self-denial, we need to give up on two things. And as we look at the text, the first one that we are going to give up on, the thing that you need to surrender is, number one, give up on your religious, self-righteous nonsense. That you and I are to give up on our religious, self-righteous nonsense. That's the first thing we're going to see. And this is important. Because as we embark on a journey of talking about self-denial, I need you to see this. Some of us think about uh, carrying our cross, that metaphor, as a way to become Navy SEAL Christians. That if we are going to be like cross-carrying, dying to self, like really serious Christians, then it's actually going to make us better Christians than other Christians. And the problem with that in this whole concept of self-denial is that the life of cross-carrying self-denial recognizes first that we are all desperate for Jesus' grace. We are all desperate. None of us is morally superior. That's what the cross teaches, that the ground is even at the foot of Jesus' cross, the place of our need. And the first thing we must crucify then is our religion. Let's look at the text right in, right in your hands there in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now notice this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Stop right there. You lack one thing. What is going on here? This is uh, who we've referred to as the rich young ruler throughout centuries. The famous story. And this young man has it all together. Doesn't he? Like, who do you know that has it all together? The person who has uh, good looks, intelligence, competency. They have a great job. They've got money dialed. They've got a great family. They have it all together. That is this guy, all right? In verse 17, we see why. It says, a man ran up and knelt before him. This is very interesting. So not only is he kind of rich, he's young, he's probably good looking. You can almost hear it in the text there. He also actually has respect for authority, doesn't he? And and we typically think of this guy, if you know the kind of uh, Christian story of read the gospels, as a guy who failed, who blew it. But what I want you to see here is that actually he recognizes the importance of Jesus, doesn't he? Like, he actually comes to Jesus. He doesn't walk to Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus to come to him. He runs to Jesus. And then he kneels before Jesus. We would do well to do just that, wouldn't we? To run to Jesus and to bow before him, prostrate. He demonstrates genuine earnestness. And then what does he call Jesus? Looking again at 17, he says, what? Good teacher. Good teacher. Now, um, you might think, well, maybe he's saying here that Jesus is like just a teacher. And so, you know, good teacher, he's belittling Jesus. Well, not necessarily. This word for good, good teacher, is actually uh, not a phrase in their day. You would almost never call a rabbi good. You would never say, hey, good rabbi. This word for good is actually used of God alone. 
And so when he calls him good here, he's saying there's something, something different about you, Jesus, as a teacher. There's something special about you. I recognize that. And so they get into this dialogue, and he, he tells him why he's there. He says, listen, like, what must I do to be saved? And this is a, a rich, uh, uh, good-looking, uh, you know, solid man. And he's saying, look, I've checked all the boxes, Jesus. What else do I need to check? Like, do I have it together? And, and he's after having it together. And it's fascinating because Jesus says, hey, look, you know the commandments, right? And he starts lifting off six of the 10 commandments. And the response is interesting. Look at verse 20. This man who has it together says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And so this man who has it all together brings to Jesus now, not only his good looks and his fame and his money, but he says, hey, look, like, I have a spiritual resume to lay before you. Like he, you can almost see the smile that probably broke across his face. Like, like good teacher, like I, I've obeyed these things since my youth. And so he's probably excited here presenting his resume before Jesus. Let me tell you something for a second. We look at this guy and he's supposed to be sort of this example in the Bible of, uh, of, in some ways, like what we're not to do. And we'll see that in a moment. But I want you to see first that you are a lot more like this guy than you realize. You and I have a lot more in common with the rich young ruler than we like to admit. Because all of us are just like him in that we are all trying to build a spiritual resume. Every single human being in this room, deep down, you know that there is this moral code. Like, you know that there is this need for uh, living above reproach, to be accepted morally. And we are all sort of chasing after that in our own way. And here's why I know that about all of us right now, and not just me, but, but also you. Uh, because even in a secular culture like Gresham, Oregon, that has no space or need for God, we, have, we are very irreligious, all of us are still functioning as highly religious people. Uh, so here's what I mean. We live in this uh, secular creed here in, in the Northwest. And if you grew up um, and, and are not a Christian or you've grown up and weren't a Christian and became one later, like you know this. Like even in school, we're taught the secular creed, which is what? Basically, we've come from nowhere. Uh, we sort of accidentally evolved into what we are, fortunately. And we're going nowhere when we die. And so, like, objective moral truth in between, the idea that you have some standard that you need to abide by, uh, that's actually not even real. And so you sort of make up the purpose of your life on your own, and you can kind of define morality on your own. And so we are fully secular people, yes? We know this. The problem with it is the default mode of the human heart doesn't change just because our doctrines do. And so people are chasing after morality all over the place. In fact, even as we get more secular, we get only more progressively religious in our morality. Like even this month, what you will see all over the place is this idea of Pride Month. Yes, Pride Month is everywhere. Now, my intention in this moment isn't actually to explain right or wrong on Pride Month. That's not the point of the text. But what I do want you to see is when and if you participate and those who participate in Pride Month, I just want you to know what you're doing when you do that. What you are saying is there is this moral idea of how to treat people. And therefore, whether I'm running a business or an organization or a school or I'm just living my life, I need to put a flag out there. And it needs to have the right number of, you know, colors, and it needs to have the right representation on there, because I am a good and a moral person who cares about people. 
And so I want to present to you all that I am a good and a superior and a loving person. I accept and I affirm people. What we're doing there, that is not just like um, a movement or something temporary. That comes out of the deep ache of the human soul that says, I need to be morally right before others. My business needs to be understood as on the right side of history. Here's the problem with that, though. Even in a secular culture like ours, that's chasing after this form of morality. We get a sense that although we can chase as hard as we want this moral um, standard, we never can fully measure up. And we know it. We know it. Here's what I mean. We saw it uh, really viscerally in 2020, did we not? That you can be on the right side of history in one minute, and the very next minute on Twitter, you can be canceled. <laughs> right? We see it again and again with J.K. Rowling and Dave Chappelle, and Matt Damon, and all of these celebrities. And every time it happens, if you're really honest in the quiet of your heart, there are times when you're going like, man, I'm kind of scared too. Like, when am I going to be canceled? Like, I feel like, maybe you feel like I'm a progressive person. Like, I understand people, and I affirm all kinds of things. But man, at what point will I not affirm it enough? At what point will I not truly measure up? The truth is, we all sense that there's a moral need, but we all don't quite measure up. And we feel that even in our culture. And so you see it in this man and we see it in the story. And I want you to see his interaction with Jesus. Do I measure up? Like if you were to bring your spiritual resume to Jesus and say like, Lord, here it is. Here's my life. Here's how I've loved people. Here's how I've taken care of my kids. Here's my political affiliations one way or another. Here is all of my morality. What would Jesus say? Do you think? Well, I think we find the answer to it in verse 21 in his response to this young man. What does he say? You lack one thing. You lack one thing. See, this is the gnarly thing and the scary thing about Jesus, folks, is you can present your morality to Jesus and Jesus is going all over the place and just throttling your ability to save yourself. That is who Jesus is. He's going around and he's saying, you are not enough. You are not enough. You are not enough. And you're like, I thought Jesus was like a really nice guy. You half expect him to go, hey, young man, like you did it. Like, good job for trying. And like, I care about you. Like, give me a hug. You know, like, well done, good and faithful servant. He, he really is trying here. And why is Jesus so mean? He's so mean because I think he's trying to set this young man free. It says, you still lack one thing. And Jesus does this over and again. He did this in Matthew 5. If you guys are familiar, or you can go check this out. The Sermon on the Mount. What the Sermon on the Mount says is, hey, it's Jesus' Ten Commandments, basically, right? He comes in and he says, hey, you who have kept the law, maybe you've not committed adultery. Who here hasn't committed adultery? And you almost picked me. Oh, yes, me. I have not committed adultery. And so people, oh, you're a good person. And Jesus says, hey, good job. Uh, except for one thing. Uh, if you have ever lusted in your heart, in the quiet of your heart, problem is that you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so who's left? Raise your hand. <laughs> all the hands go down and all the heads go down too, like feeling really uncomfortable and awful in that moment. Jesus is constantly saying, you can't measure up, but let me tell you this, that is very good news. That he tells us and he tells this man that you cannot measure up. In fact, I want you to see that he even tells this man he doesn't measure up in his uh, respect for Jesus, right? And the weirdest verse in here is verse 18. Did you, did you guys catch this? The weirdest verse here, he's trying to show him he doesn't measure up, but, I, but I, uh, there's some confusion about it. Look at it in the text. It says, why do you call me good? No one is good except 
God alone. This is a confusing verse because we read that and we're like, wait, I thought the book of Mark was trying to prove that Jesus is God, you know, and here it seems like Jesus is saying, only God's good, so don't call me good. Is that what Jesus is saying? Um, this would be a problem for our faith if, if it was. Here's what's interesting. I don't think John Mark is schizophrenic in his theology here, the author of the text. I think what's going on is very clear because Jesus is a rabbi. And rabbis are constantly, especially Jesus, asking questions that reveal our hearts. And his question here is he's saying basically this. Hear it this way. Hey, you call me good. It's an interesting title for me. You know, the one who's good is actually God himself. Why do you say that I'm good? He's trying to lead him into a deeper understanding of his enormity and the man's need for his grace. He's saying, you still don't measure up even in the way you refer to me. This is good news because what it means is we can abandon resume theology and embrace a theology of the open cup. Uh, What I mean is this, that uh, there are only basically two approaches to God. The one approach says, hey, look, I present my resume before God, and God, therefore, must accept me if I have achieved enough. And, and daily, we go to God like this, God, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? The other theology says, actually, I can never do enough. I don't have a resume to present, but I am a beggar before him. And so all I have is this open cup, this empty cup, Lord, will you fill me up? Listen, today, if, if you're exploring Jesus, what I need you to see is you need to have open cup theology. That, Lord, I desperately need you. Show me who you are. Fill me up and cover me in your righteousness. I can't do it alone. The other reason this is good news, that our religion doesn't measure up and we can never do so, is because of the other thing we learn in verse 21. So Jesus is coming in and saying, you are not enough. But he also says this, or he also does this. Look at verse 21 again here on the screen. It says, and Jesus, right before he rebukes the guy that he's not good enough, Looked at him and what? He loved him. He loved him. This is really beautiful. You know that every time Jesus convicts us of our brokenness, it is always an invitation into his love. What's going on here is we see just a little glimpse, I think, of the gospel grace and the gospel love of Jesus. Have you ever seen the loving eyes of Jesus? Um, no, uh, a few months back, I, uh, I had a, an argument with my wife and I was, um, <clears throat> I was agitated because I had all this stuff going on and work and life and I was just grumpy and uh, of course, and so I'm, I'm at home and so that's where I can act grumpy. I have to pretend to be like nice when I'm pastoring, uh, but then I can go home and I can be kind of like my real self, which is still broken and, and still a work in progress. And uh, I remember just being just not very nice to her and agitated and now we're fighting and annoyed with each other. Um, is it okay for me to be this vulnerable here? You guys fight with your spouses? Is that just me? I don't know. And so I'm, I'm arguing with her and I'm like, whatever. And so I'm doing the whole thing where I'm, I'm like, we're done. And so I'm like gonna walk away. And uh, whenever you're arguing with your spouse, um, you know how your kids are just really obedient in that time? <laughs> no? Like, I don't know what you're feeding your kids, uh, but mine get nasty in that moment. And they always take mommy's side. <laughs> Why is that? Like, you guys need to stop arguing. And like, mommy's right, you nasty daddy. <laughs> and so um, 
if I used to be perfectly blunt, like I overreacted in that moment. Like I became a child and was like, you guys, you little monsters, all of you go your room. Nasty. No, I'm not nasty. You're nasty. I'm like devolving into childhood again. Which is like really funny in this setting. Uh, but like in the moment when you're seven, when you're four, when you're three, like I blew it. I blew it in reacting that way. And so they're in their room <laughs> being punished unrighteously. And I realized like the Holy Spirit was like, dude, do I need to knock you out now or later? <laughs> I was like, I, I, I can repent right now. <laughs> and uh, I go to their room and uh, I'll never forget that I go around to the kids and I end up uh, crouching down. And I remember crouching down near Remy, my four-year-old. And he is uh, cute because he's got little hipster glasses and he's four. And I said, buddy, daddy was a bad daddy just now. Daddy is lame, and daddy is sorry that he treated you like that. And to be honest, like, I'm, I'm actually emotional in this moment. Like, I'm feeling pretty messed up. But kids are so different than adults. And that's in this moment, he doesn't say, yeah, daddy, like, what's wrong with you? And you stay in the doghouse a little longer. I mean, he just reaches out his arms instantly. He's like, daddy, I'm so glad you're a good daddy again. <laughs> And there's little tears, and, and he cannot wait to look at me with love. You ever felt that from your kids? There's such an innocent and graceful love there. Your spouse would never be that nice. <laughs> Here's what I think. I'm just guessing, but I think the eyes of Jesus were like that looking at you through eyes of love despite the fact that you don't deserve it. And that is what he looks at you right now. If you are not a Christian, I, I'm not here to proclaim to you a, a, a theology of a big God who's angry and you need to make it right with him. Actually, the good news of the Bible is yes, we have blown it, but Jesus came to die for our sin in our place that he can look at us with eyes of grace. That is the good news today for all of us who are sinners. So we need to give up on our religious, self-righteous nonsense. Amen. Number two, and finally, we, not, we need to not only give up on religion, but we need to give up on sin. And I'll put it this way. Give up on anything that allows you to gain everything. Give up on anything that allows you to gain everything. Let's grab our Bibles again. Look at verses 21 through 25 as we finish it out here, <clears throat> it says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And you're like, camel through the eye of a needle? That doesn't sound possible. That's exactly Jesus' point. Look, verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished. 
and said to him, then who can be saved? It's the right question. Verse 20, uh, let's actually stop right there. Let's stop right there before we give too much away here. Surprise endings matter. And so here in verses 21 through 25, they, they find the difficulty of salvation. Um, and the difficulty here for this man is money, is money. Now, I really want to be careful about this. I don't have uh, time to get into all of it, but here's the, here's, um, let's just thread a needle here. Um, that money on its own is spiritually neutral. It is not actually a sin to pursue money. It is not a sin to have money, and rich people aren't sinful. Jesus is not here like preaching Marxism or something, right? Money on its own is spiritually and morally neutral, but the love of money is spiritually lethal. And particularly for this man, because it was in the place of God. He was holding on to it. Um, I don't know if you guys have watched weird YouTube videos like this, but um, I've seen these videos where they capture baboons. And what happens is, why are you laughing at that? <laughs> it's not funny. My kids like animals, okay? <laughs> Chill, I'm not a weirdo. Um, so the way they capture these bamboos, uh, bamboons uh, is they hollow out a coconut. And they'll put it in something or they're tied to something. And what the monkey does is it puts its hand in, because you can make your hand small this way, but once they grab onto the salt or the treat or whatever, it can't get back out. And what's fascinating is all the poachers move in, right? And the monkey can see the poachers, knows its demise is coming, and so it frantically tries to pull away. What's the only problem? Well, the hand can come out like this, but if it's holding on to something, his hand can't come out. All he would have to do to experience real life is let go. See? And in the same way this man was holding on to money in the place of God for his identity, for his accomplishments, holding on to that, and it was preventing him from experiencing real life. And Jesus knew it. And Jesus wanted to set him free. And I love this. Um, it's fascinating because we actually get this in a really nuanced day, way. Jesus is brilliant and the scriptures are mind-blowing. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Even if you've studied this passage, it might be unique. Verse 19, we see their dialogue, right? And in their dialogue, basically what goes on is he says, hey, you need to obey the Ten Commandments because it is true that obedience to God results in life salvific life is always connected to obedience, right? And so he's right to say, look, you need to obey the commandments. But I want you to notice what commandments he brings up. He says, hey, number one, do not murder, adultery, steal, bear false witness, defraud, and you got to honor your mother. Why did Jesus choose those six? Just, you know, like making it easier for him? Like, why only six? Well, here's what's going on. It's actually very purposeful of the rabbi Jesus. Um, number one is, uh, well, what he's doing here is he's referring to uh, what, are, what we've called in uh, theological history, the two tables of the law. Don't fall asleep. This is important. Two tables of the law. Um, the first one is this. The first table is that we should love God. The Ten Commandments can be broken up into two categories, right? And the first category are all listed out things here on the screen, that we should have no idols, uh, create images, uh, you know, take God's name in vain, and we should have a Sabbath to connect with God and so forth. So the first four are all about loving God. The second four are all about loving people. Now notice what Jesus did here. Did he refer to any of the first table commandments? No. And the man was readily able to say, well, I've not killed anybody, you know, like I've loved people. 
Here is his problem that Jesus is pointing out. See how brilliant Jesus is? He's saying, yes, you love people, but you don't truly have a heart for God. There's something in the way. There is something you are holding on to. That is why D.A. Carson defines sin. See, some of us think that we are not in sin because, we, and, and, and you, you're maybe new to Christianity, you're exploring Christianity, you say, I'm actually a good person. Like I said earlier, like I love people. I'm for people. I care about people. I've never wronged people. But here's the problem. You have an apathetic heart towards God. You don't yet know God. You don't yet have a heart after God. And so D.A. Carson, his definition of sin at the core is the de-godding of God. That before we sin against other people, we must first reject the rule and reign and love of Jesus. That's, that's what he's saying here. And Jesus said, you have rejected me. Just let it go. He's saying, you have your hands on this stuff. Trade me for the stuff. Let me into your life. Let it go, bro. Like, let me in. And, and I love this. This is very fascinating. Notice the contrast here in scripture. What is the contrast? So this man in verse 17, what did he do? He ran up to Jesus, eagerly bowed prostrate before him. He knelt there. Jesus, I got to be with Jesus. I got to know you, Jesus. I, I need to know, I have your approval, Jesus. And he says, hey, let go of this thing. I've identified your thing and I'm asking you to let it go. And what he does in response is he says, what? Well, it says in verse 22, disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Notice what's happened. He rushed to Jesus in urgency, but then he walked away with his head bowed because he wouldn't give up that one thing. Can I just ask you today? Maybe you're a good person. Like most people would say, oh, this is a good person, right? but do you have something that keeps you back from knowing and loving and desiring God? Like, is there anything that stands between you and God? What is that? Is that relationship? You kind of know, like, I know I shouldn't have this relationship, but I've got this relationship. And I, and I can't fully get into the Jesus thing because I've got this other thing. Maybe you're a believer here and you have been wrestling for years with bitterness towards another believer or bitterness towards somebody. And you're saying like, I, I just, there's something hard about my heart. I don't go all the way in because I'm just still so mad. What is it for you that you are holding on to? What's that thing that even as you kind of hear this story, you know like the Holy Spirit is pointing right there. Let this go. Let this go. Deny yourself. Carry your cross and follow me. And you're like, I don't know if I can. Um, as a pastor, I've, I've had really rich and awesome conversations with a ton of, a ton of guys in particular. And one of the things I've found is there, there's a certain kind of guy in the church that is, that is truly Christian, you know? They could affirm all the, all the doctrines, would say, yeah, no, I, I follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I'm raising my kids in the Lord. I'm, I'm here at church every Sunday, like I serve. But there's just something about him that he can't fully get all the way in. You know what I'm saying? Where during the worship songs and stuff, there, there's people that will raise hands or, or truly sing or, or pray during the worship and respond to God. But, he, but there's just a kind of a hardness about this guy where he's like, I'm not fully in. Like I've never been able to get there. <clears throat> and what I've found over and over and over again is a lot of times, this is a guy who has been struggling with secret pornography. 
or some other secret sin. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit finally gets a hold of him. Finally convicts him of that sin. Finally gives him enough strength to say, like to his wife, like I'm struggling with this. This is something I've done. This is where I'm blowing it. This is what I'm struggling with. And I don't care what happens to me. I just need Jesus now. Like I want to come clean. And over and over and over and over and over and over again, I see guys who give this up within two weeks of just saying, you know what? I don't care what happens to me. I need to take the steps uh, necessary. I need to give up this sin. They go into that worship service and you know what they do? They weep for the first time during that first set. They go in and they hear the message and, and the brother is like, yeah, amen. Never said anything to Jesus or about Jesus his whole life. He hears the gospel and he's like, that's the gospel I need. You guys seen this? Where they go from zero to a hundred. Why did that happen? It's because he let it go finally. And now God has, has allowed you to have this kind of soft heart where you're like, man, like I need grace. Like I need this gospel. This gospel is good for me. I recognize how broken I was. And I don't care if it's pornography. I don't care if it's uh, any other form of sin, greed, what have you. But there is a softening coming if you would let go. There is a nearness to God that you have yet to experience it. What if today were the day you said, you know, I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to give that thing up. What if today were that day? So some of you are going to hear this and you'll be like, I, I struggle right now. I hear the message. I recognize the excitement. I'm down with the tattoos. Like, fine, here, you, there's your message. Get it, bro. But not me. Because you're honestly scared. I want to give you real quick, just three things from the text that will be very, very helpful if you are in that place right now. If you are saying, man, I have something I need to surrender something I need to crucify, but I can't do it. Let me give you three things. Number one is this, God's power. God's power, look down in your hand at the Bible. And they were exceedingly, verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Listen, today, if you are struggling to surrender, you need to look to God's power. Maybe you're, still, you're gonna wrestle with this. What I wanna urge you is during the songs, during the worship, maybe you just speak to God quietly. Maybe you go back to the prayer room. Maybe you know it's not appropriate just yet, but you plan like right after this, I'm gonna to talk to my spouse. Right over this, I'm gonna to talk to that guy I trust or that gal I trust and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it, but I need your power, Lord, and so I'm praying. Seek God's power. Because it is impossible with you to soften your own heart, but it is possible with God. And number two, you need to realize that you have basically nothing to gain by holding on to this. You, you understand that, right? But if you would let go, you will gain everything. You will gain everything. Look at verse 28. Peter said, I love Peter because he's like scared right now. He's like, if he can't go to heaven, like what about me? And so Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. <laughs> Right, Jesus? Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions as well, by the way. And in the age to come, eternal life. He's saying you have everything to gain. You get to enter the kingdom of God if you would let it go today. You get to have a full and rich relationship with God that's coming in eternity, 
But he even says, in this age and eternity, it's going to start today. That softness is going to unleash the kingdom into your life in a way that you have yet to experience, brother. Like, give it to him. Give it to him. And then lastly, you need to get crazy. (laughs) You need to give it up. You need to do absolutely anything it takes. This is what it says in verse 31. How many who are first will be last and the last will be first? He says, look, even if it takes you being the lowest place, even if it ruins you to follow after Jesus, it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, I recently heard a story about um, Alexander the Great. You guys know Alexander the Great? What is he known for? Well, he conquered the world. This is Alexander the Great. Uh, But typically when um, you do something great like that, really deep down, you're not doing it for the world. Usually doing it for one, maybe two people, right? And it was true of him too. And if Alexander the Great, he would say, uh, wasn't himself, he would want to be this other guy named Diogenes. And Diogenes is a, uh, he's known for, he's the father of cynicism. So he's a philosopher and he's a genius. And Alexander the Great's like, I, I, I want to do this for him. And so I'm going to offer him the world. So he conquers the world. But Diogenes, for his own right, had discovered, man, I could have anything. But what I really want is just one thing. He wanted to go. He wanted to live in the sun. And he wanted to soak it in. Because he discovered the light. So he said, forget it. And he goes and he's literally sunbathing when Alexander the Great shows up. He had found his one thing. And Alexander the Great shows up and says, hey, I want to give you anything you wish. I have conquered the world and it can all be yours, Diogenes. Let me give you absolutely anything you want. And then Diogenes says what I personally think is the most punk rock thing that has ever been said in the face of the earth is he barely notices Alexander, the great conqueror of the world, offering him everything his heart could desire. And all he has to say is this, get out of my light. Get out of my light. He had found the one thing that he wanted. He had found the light, and he said, that's the one thing. You can't offer me anything. You can offer me the world. You can offer me the world over, and I already found it. I got my one thing. I am good. And listen to me today. Some of you are saying no to Jesus today. Some of you are are Christians. You won't let it go. Or you're struggling with something that you won't come clean about. Or or maybe you're not a Christian. You're saying, man, I'm worried about what people think. I'm worried about what I will lose in this world, in this life, if I follow Jesus. Maybe you're even somebody who you need to get baptized. We've been saying, hey, get baptized at Church in the Park, July 3rd, sign up. And you're like yeah, I want to, but what will my parents think of me? Like, what, what, what will my coworkers think of me? I don't know if I'm in for this Jesus thing. I know I should. I've been, I've been hanging out. I just, but man, what you need to save from the pit of your soul today is get out of my light. Get out of my light, whatever that thing is. Today, let us do business with God. Let us embrace the life of self-denial that says, get out of my light, whatever it is. If it's your parents, maybe don't say it to their face, right? Like, like don't, don't do that. Don't text them like, get out of my light. But what we need to do is from our soul say, this is not worth losing Jesus. And I have everything to gain in him. Amen.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can surrender religion, that religion has no place in this household of God, that being holier than thou, that being better than other people, than thinking of ourselves as a doctrinal Navy SEAL or, or somebody who contributes a lot, all of that has done nothing to contribute to our salvation, and we must embrace the way of the cross that says religion is dead and Jesus is alive, and I bend my knee to him and surrender. And so, Lord, I pray that today those who are religious would repent, that they would see their need and experience again the softness of your grace. And, Lord, we pray right now for those who are struggling with the surrender, which is all of us. Lord, would you put your finger on something in our hearts even during this worship time and say, let it go. Give it up and let us walk with you fully. In Jesus' name, amen.